We're at the front end of a series that we're calling I Believe. And in the series, we're looking at those things that Christians have believed through the centuries and believe today across denominational lines. So in the words that we often use, we're looking at the absolutes, the essentials of the Christian faith, not at a particular set of convictions, certainly not at preferences or idiosyncrasies of one group or another. We're looking at those things that have been believed by Christians through history and around the world today. A couple of weeks ago, we started the series by celebrating communion together, and then we talked about the mission of Jesus as being one of connecting. Jesus connects us to the Father. Jesus connects us to himself. He connects us to one another in community, and he connects us with a future that we don't deserve. Last week, we talked about the Bible, uh, the, the source of our beliefs, and we said that the Bible is reliable. It's trustworthy. It's true. We can believe what it says. We also said that the Bible is our authority. If it's God's word, well, then we need to do what it says and live out of what it teaches. We also said that the Bible has a point and a purpose. The point of the Bible is Jesus. It's not a whole bunch of facts. The point of the Bible is Jesus. And the whole purpose of Scripture from beginning to end is to point us and lead us to him. Well, this morning, we're going to look at I Believe. And some of you think, I know that's the name of the series. No, no, we're going to look at I Believe. We're going to examine what it means to believe. In other words, we're going to look at what the Bible means when it says to have faith. What does it mean to have faith? What does it mean to trust? And if we come to some understanding of what it means to believe, then we can wrap our minds not only around belief, but wrap our minds around what that means if we believe Jesus in the mission that he came to accomplish. Well, we're going to start by talking about everybody believing. And some of you are thinking, what? We often use expressions like this. Um, we gather as a group of believers. And what we mean by that is we're believers in Jesus. Or do you believe, and what we mean by that, do you believe in the Christian message? But we need to back up from that and essentially say everybody's a believer. Everybody believes, and everybody believes in the, in the way that the, that the Bible talks about believing. But the Bible doesn't talk about believing just in terms of thinking. You see, faith in the Bible is thinking plus following. It's thinking, your mind's engaged, but then on the basis of what you're thinking, you then act, you do things. You believe, right? You think, and then you do. You think, and then you say. You think, and then you feel. Belief in the Bible, faith in the Scripture, trust in the way the Bible speaks of it, is always thinking and following together, not separate. So, for example, suppose a, a two-year-old child, a two-year-old little girl, is standing on the sixth step of uh, the stairs in her house that go to the second floor, and her father's standing down below on, on the floor. And he reaches out his arms and says, come on, honey, jump to daddy. Now, she may think that dad can catch her. She may think that daddy's not distracted, he's not looking at the ball game and he's going to drop me. She thinks, but she doesn't have biblical faith. She doesn't trust the way the Bible refers to it until she leaves that sixth step and is in the air. That is believing the way the Bible refers to it. 
But we need to remind ourselves, everybody believes. Everybody thinks some thoughts. And on the basis of those thoughts, we act. On the basis of those thoughts, we think. On the basis of those thoughts, we speak. On the basis of those thoughts, we feel. Another example. Suppose you have a friend who uh, is starting a business. And he's looking for investors. And you believe, you know, you think in your mind that he's got a really good idea. You think he's a half-decent business guy and he's put together this business plan. You also have some disposable income laying around. You think it's a good investment. But you don't have biblical faith until you write the check and hand it to the guy. Once you write the check and hand it to him, that is faith the way the Bible refers to, to it. Fit thinking plus following. That's the idea. Here's another important thing we need to recognize because of the culture in which we live. What we believe is more important than how much we believe. Now, I know if you've uh, listened to TV or hung out with people, you've heard somebody or someone say this. It doesn't matter what you believe as long as you believe with all your heart. You ever heard that? It doesn't matter what you believe as long as you believe it with all your heart. Nonsense. What do you mean it doesn't matter what you believe? Picture the scene. Two guys, A and B, two ladders, ladder A and ladder B. Person A has all the faith in the world that his ladder can hold him. But you look at the ladder and it's wooden and it's rotted and termite ridden. Um, but he has all the faith in the world that the ladder can hold him. Person B is scared to death to climb the ladder. But he's got an aluminum ladder that's brand new. The ladder is guaranteed to hold at least 50 times his weight. But he has very little faith. He doesn't believe that the ladder is going to hold him. Person A and person B begin to climb the ladders. Person A, the guy with all the faith in the world but the rotten ladder, is soon going to be headed to the emergency room. Person B, with great fear and trembling and lots of sweat climbing the rungs, he's going to be just fine. You see, that's what the Bible says. The object of our faith is more important than the purity or the amount of our faith. But we live in a culture that says faith is just thinking and it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you believe with all your heart. We need to take those notions and remove them from our minds because when the Bible talks about believing and faith and trust, it's not talking about what our culture says. It's talking about faith equals thinking plus following and the object of our faith is all important. Well, before we move on to talk about what Christians believe, I thought it'd be important to take a couple of minutes and talk about what a high percentage of Americans believe. So here's a question. What's the most popular religion in America? You don't have to yell at it. Just think for a minute. And I'll give you a couple hints. It's not Christianity. It's not Islam. It's not Judaism, Hinduism, Buddhism. The most popular religion in America is moral therapeutic deism. Those words were coined by Charles Smith. He teaches at Notre Dame, great university, and they lost again yesterday. Yes! Um, <laughs> right after the service, I was met by two Notre Dame guys at the door. said, one more time, Charles, we're out of here. One more time. Uh, Notre Dame's a great university. Charles Smith teaches in a sociology department. I hate their football team. But that's beside the point. Well, Charles Smith teaches at Notre Dame, and he came up with this term to describe the majority religion in America, moral therapeutic deism. 
So I think, I never heard of that before. That's because if you teach at a university, you have to use words nobody knows. And then you write a book explaining the words that nobody knows. But even though you, don't, you may not know that phrase or you may never heard of moral therapeutic deism, I know that you know people and you may be tempted to believe moral therapeutic deism. Here are the five components of moral therapeutic deism. Number one, there's a God and he created the world. Most Americans, in case you don't realize this, most Americans believe that God made stuff, right? God created the world. But the deistic part of that, right, the moral therapeutic deism, the deism part says God created everything, but then he kind of steps back, hands off. He's not really messing with the stuff he made now. He kind of started the universe, now he backs off and says, okay, you work it out now. That, that's the deistic part. The second tenet is God wants people to be nice, fair, and good. Can I just let you know a secret? Jesus never calls us to be nice. And all you nasty folks are saying, I knew it. I just knew it. No, 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 no. He didn't call you to be nasty either, all right? But the message of the gospel is not to be nice. Jesus does say, yeah, we're to be fair, we're to be good, but our mission is not primarily to be nice, good, and fair, right? Now, moral therapeutic deism would say, oh, yeah, but that's what the Bible teaches and all the other religions teach, kind of be nice, fair, good. No, no, no. The third tenet, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about yourself. That's the therapeutic part of moral therapeutic deism. You need to be happy. That's your number one mission in life, to be happy. And to have really positive self-esteem. That's what you, does this sound familiar now? Moral therapeutic deism. The fourth tenet, God doesn't need to be involved in your life unless you're in a crisis and you really need his help. So, right, God's kind of on the sidelines. He kind of started everything. And he's available if you need him, but he's not going to interfere. He's not going to, you know, complicate your life. He's not going to ask you to do things that are uncomfortable. He's kind of on the sidelines. Now, if you're in a crisis, you can call on him, and he's going to rush in and bail you out. And the last thing is, good people go to heaven when they die. Here's my hunch. You live around people that believe moral therapeutic deism. Um, you work with people that adhere to the most popular religion in America, moral therapeutic deism. The sad thing is, many Christian parents have taught their kids moral therapeutic deism rather than Christianity. There's a temptation to do that, right? We at times believe that the five tenets of moral therapeutic deism are kind of what they're the tenets that the Bible teaches. No, they're not. Moral therapeutic deism is not the gospel. Moral therapeutic deism is opposed to the gospel. Let me ask you a couple questions. In the five tenets of moral therapeutic deism, where is sin? Where's the cross? Where's the mission of Jesus to bring forgiveness? Where's repentance? Where's sacrifice to partner with Jesus in continuing the mission? All those things that infringe on our freedom and our comfort are gone. Yeah, moral therapeutic deism may be the most popular religion in America, but it's not Christianity. And don't take the belief of America and make that the belief of the Bible. This is what most Americans may believe. It's not what the Bible teaches. It's not what Jesus came to deliver, and this is not the gospel. Well, that raises a question then. 
If we said everybody's a believer, right, everybody thinks things, and on the basis of what we think and how we put life together, we then act and feel and speak. Well, if that's true, and if most Americans are kind of believing this, moral therapeutic deism, well, what do Christians believe then? Like, what do we believe? Well, through the centuries and across denominational lines, a summary of Christian absolutes has been put together in what's called the Apostles' Creed. So here's the Apostles' Creed. All right, so it, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Let me ask, how many of you grew up in a tradition or were raised kind of in a religious setting where you regularly recited the Apostles' Creed? Yeah, a lot of you. Okay, good. Yeah, the Apostles' Creed um, was developed not by the apostles, right? So the apostles didn't sit down and write this, but it represents the, what the apostles taught. So the Apostles' Creed, kind of like a summary statement, a little formula of the basic tenets of what the apostles taught. And if you think about it, the basic ideas, the formula was put together because the printing press wasn't invented to the 1500s, which meant up until then, the vast majority of people didn't have a Bible. And so, you know, if someone in your neighborhood, someone, you know, your neighbor becomes a Christian and says, oh, you really like a Bible, you'd have to go home and write them one. You know, take your copy and write their copy. Most people didn't have a Bible. And so the early church leaders came up with a formula and said, you know what? We can put together the basic ideas of the essentials, the absolutes of Christianity, and they put it together in what's called the Apostles' Creed. You'll notice that it's Trinitarian. It's kind of cool, right? You've got a father paragraph. That's the first one. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Then you've got a son paragraph, right? A Jesus paragraph. Remember how we started this series? Jesus is the center. His mission is all that, that's the center. Everything flows to and from. The Apostles' Creed follows it. What's the center of the creed? Jesus. What's the longest part of the creed? Jesus. Because the Bible's a point and a purpose. Jesus leads us to him. That's what the creed does too. Then you've got a spirit part to the creed, right? Holy Spirit. That's the last paragraph. And a church part, kind of the community, how we fit at the end. Now, there's also some weird things in the creed because it was written a long time ago, right? So let me point out a couple of the weird things. What's up with like the Holy Ghost thing? Okay, first of all, that's not the, that, that's not the new defenseman for the flyers, all right? That's not that ghost. It's not Casper either. Now, ghost, it means spirit. So when it says Holy Ghost, that just means Holy Spirit. Then you got this other weird thing. It says, third line of the Jesus uh, section there, the end of the line, Jesus descended into hell. We like action movies, right? So in some people's minds, in some Christians' minds, yeah, that's right. After Jesus was crucified, he whipped out his sword and he went to hell, right? And he's walking up and down the corridors and there are prisons on each side, right? And he goes down and he's knocking the locks off the doors and he's setting off. No, he's not. Yeah, that may make a great action movie. That's not what the Bible teaches. At this point, suffice it to say, Jesus' descent into hell means that Jesus experienced hell on the cross, and when he was abandoned by the Father, right? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The essence of hell is separation from God. That's what Jesus experienced. Jesus didn't go to a place and knock locks off prison doors, all right? He experienced what we deserve so that then he can give us what he deserves. That's what's going on. Well, how about the Catholic Church then? Like, I thought we were Protestants. And then we say Okay, notice Catholic's not capitalized. You don't say in the creed, I believe in the Roman Catholic Church. Catholic just means universal. So what the creed is saying is, when we say the creed, 
we are identifying with all believers through the ages and around the world. The universal church, all those followers of Jesus that believe the absolutes in common, we are part of that group. That's pretty cool, isn't it? Well, how about this one? Communion of the saints. It's kind of like the beginning of 300 where, you know, the king climbs the mountain and those freaky dudes are up there. Is that what it means? Where, where these real wise old guys are eating little pieces of bread and drinking shot glasses of grape juice. No, no. Communion just means community. And so again, the idea is universal church, when we say the creed, when we believe the creed, right, thinking and following, we join the community of followers of Jesus through the ages and around the world that will one day culminate in the new heavens and the new earth. That's what the creed's about. It's a creed of absolutes, right? It's the center. Really not speaking to convictions that much, not speaking to idiosyncrasies, not speaking to denominational preferences, not talking about worship style. This is absolutes, the center. And some of you think, yeah, but creed, that's a weird word. No, actually you just learned a Latin word. Creed in Latin, I believe, is credo. So what's the first word of the creed in Latin? Credo. What do we call it? Creed. Real creative guy named the creed, right? And so the apostle's belief statement, that's what it is. Well, that's the Apostles' Creed, a father, son, spirit statement of absolutes that Christians have believed through history and around the world. That's what Christians believe. Not moral therapeutic deism, friends. Notice in this statement, forgiveness of sins is required. Submission to a holy God is required. Connection in a community where your preferences are put on the back burner and you make sacrifices for the good of the body whole different ballgame, right? Which one are you following, not which one are you just thinking? Well, one last uh, point I want to talk about, and that is uh, we all need something. So if everybody believes, and if Christians believe, um, what do we all need? Well, let me talk about everybody's need from two verses uh, from the middle of the book of Romans. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, Give us a, a statement of what everybody needs. Listen to what Paul writes. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised them from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. Now, since we're Americans, and some of you are engineers, that means you emphasize an either-or way of looking at things. So you read this and say, okay, I see what's going on. Some people will confess with their mouths. Other people will believe in their hearts. No, 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 no. You don't read the Bible like an engineer, right? This is much more a both-end. When it comes to Christian theology, almost always it's a both-end, not an either-or. Paul is not saying... So if you believe in your heart, then you'll be justified. But if you speak with your mouth, then you'll be saved. No. He's saying, if you believe in your heart, you will confess with your mouth. Validate the confession of your mouth by believing in your heart. See how that works? Um, here's, here's one of the things that I, I kind of like about the Apostles' Creed. There's a thinking and a following part. We had baptism last week. And the way that we would do baptism, I really like it now, when you actually see a video of the person telling his or her story, rather than if somebody reads, that's great, right? You get to hear their story. And then right before they get wet, whoever is um, 
going to wet them, says, why do you want to be baptized? And they give the answer. Do you know in the ancient church, that same question was asked. Why do you want to be baptized? And the person getting baptized would say, I want to be baptized because I believe in, the God, in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. And he would state the creed. Because it's not just thinking. The creed doesn't say, I think. The creed doesn't say, I know. It says, I believe. There's a thinking and a doing part. The week before, we celebrated communion. When we join together and remember Christ's sacrifice for us. And we remember our future when the elements become a feast, become a banquet. Do you know what the ancient church always did before they had communion? We will join our voices as we gather around the table for communion. And let's recite together why we have communion. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Back to the statement. Um, so there's a, there's a thinking and a following part that we need to remember. That's what Paul's saying. You've got to believe in your heart. That's the inside. But if it's true belief on the inside, it'll change what you say and how you act and live on the outside. If you're acting on the outside, you should be manifesting the reality on the inside. It's a both and, not an either or. Got it? Well, why is it important then? Well, what Paul's saying here about both and rather than either or is important because we need clarity. We need clarity. Um, I did a little Google work this week, and I just go I, I didn't Google this, but I could have, right? Idiotic answers to Bible questions. I didn't Google that. But um, we often don't have clarity on what the Bible teaches and what it doesn't. So, for example, I'm not sure you realize this, about half of the people that surveyed said, God helps those that help themselves is in the Bible. Just in case you didn't realize it. That's not in there. That's not in there, right? Charles, I think it's in there. My mother told, okay, you can come use my concordance. You can go online to a Bible. It's not in there, all right? In fact, God helps those that helps themselves. That's an antithesis to the gospel. If you can help yourself, then God was a fool to send Jesus to do what you could have done yourself. God doesn't, you can't help yourself. That's why God had to send Jesus. It's not in there. Hey, here's another one. Who preached the Sermon on the Mount? Number one answer, Billy Graham. <laughs> and look, he's good, right? He's not that good. Right? Here's another one. Who were Sodom and Gomorrah? Husband and wife. Number one answer. Um, Joan of Arc, that was Noah's wife. 12% of respondents. Um, we need clarity. We need clarity. And, but if you think about it, if we really believe that the Bible's reliable, it's truthful. If we really believe it's God's word, think about that. The God who made everything sent his son to pay for our sins. He gives us his word. If you really believe it's pointing to purposes to lead us to Jesus, why do we spend so little time reading it and thinking about it? it it's a disconnect, right? We need clarity. Well, the creed can help us get clarity by understanding the main tenets. But we don't just need clarity, we need symmetry. Symmetry, right? Head and mouth, inside and outside. Thinking and doing, feeling, saying. A um, couple questions, you've got to raise your hands, right? How many of you have ever belonged to, have ever joined or regularly visited a gym? Raise your hands. All right, put your hands down. 
We won't ask who should have but didn't. We, we won't ask. We're not asking that. We're being nice. Um, if you have visited a gym for any length of time at all, even though I wouldn't know this person's name, I know you probably saw someone at the gym. Usually a guy shaped like an upside-down pear. Right? Giant chest, biceps, little tiny abs, six-pack here. Little tiny toothpicks sticking out of the bottom end of the pear, right? Because this guy's all about doing, you know, bench, bench press, doing chest things for la- all those kind of totally ignoring his legs. An upside-down pear with toothpicks on the bottom. Everybody knows why he's wearing those sweatpants. He's not wearing them because it's cold. He's wearing them because he has little tiny toothpicks, but he's only going to work his upper body. We also all know he's not nearly as strong as he thinks he is, right? He's never going to play line for a football team because anybody, even little geeky you, could walk up and push him over. He's got little toothpicks sticking out the bottom end of the pair that's upside down. He has no symmetry. Now, look, the guy still needs to exercise his upper body, but he needs to work a little bit on the toothpicks, right? Oh, yeah. The Apostles' Creed and Romans 10, 9, and 10 speak of symmetry. Not either or, not either upper body or lower body, both upper body and lower body. You need your foundation and your base as well as to be strong on the top. That means we've got to know and we've got to do. We've got to think and we've got to follow. Here's the problem for lots of people that regularly attend church. It's most of you. There's a giant gap between what we know and how we live. Second question. Remember I told you questions, plural. Second one. How many of you know you should or shouldn't do something, but you say heck with it and do or don't do it anyway? Raise your hands. All right, now keep your hands up for a second. Now, all of you that haven't raised your hands, you're all lying. And you know you shouldn't lie, but you're lying anyway. You're proving my point by keeping your hand down. Isn't that interesting? We know, we think, but we don't do. There's a giant gap. But often the clamor is, in lots of church settings, I want to know more. I need more. Feed me, feed me more information. You know what? Time out. Until you reduce the gap, you shouldn't be taking in any more information. The goal is not to get no information and so you know nothing and do nothing. That's not the goal, right? The goal is, as we increase in our thinking and knowing, we increase our living and our doing. That's how it works. We need symmetry for knowing and living, thinking and following. There needs to be symmetry. That's what Paul's speaking of in Romans 10. Oh, yeah, in the creed, it also speaks of symmetry. We read in the creed or we recite... I believe, that's individual, right? That's personal. I believe, God the Father, I believe in the Holy Ghost, Holy Catholic, I believe. That's personal and individual. But one of the things we believe in is the church, the community of faith. There's a both, there's a symmetry piece, right? There's a personal, we've got to believe and follow, but there's also a corporate, we together believe and follow. We knit our hearts together. We learn how to sacrifice for the benefit of the others. We learn how to put our preferences on the back burner so other people can have their preferences met. Just like you have to do that to have a functioning family, so we need to do that as a community, and we grow in our living and thinking of the creed and Christianity as we live in community. See how that works?
Well, when we're talking about community, that's the third word. We need clarity, symmetry, community. You know, there's a whole lot more involved than your little holy huddle, than puny little Calvary Church. We are part of the movement of Jesus that for thousands of years has been gathering followers and picking up speed. That movement continues, and we're part of it today. We've talked about that we've received the baton from those that have run before. We've got to run well and pass the baton. That's the idea of community, and we do that together. It's not either or. It's both end. We're part of this historic people of Jesus, and we're part of the global people of Jesus that will one day be united in the new heavens and the new earth forever and ever. There's a whole lot more at stake than our little group and our little holy huddle. The creed says, what knits us together isn't our little conviction package and not our little set of preferences. What knits us together is those essentials in the center, the things that the creed speaks to and the things that the Bible says regularly and clearly. Well, what we're going to do to end... We're going to uh, stand and say the creed together. Don't get up yet. I want to tell you a couple things first. Uh, but there's the creed on the screens. And it may be familiar to you. It's been contemporized a couple of times by taking out some of the weirdness. We're going to read it with all the weirdness. Um, I would challenge you to, uh, if you haven't, to memorize it. You know, go online, photocopy it, stick it in your Bible, stick it somewhere, put it on your iPhone, you get, and memorize it. It's a pretty good statement. It's not just you all alone. People around the world, Christians around the world believe this. And people through history, Christians through history have said it. We talked about clarity, symmetry, community. I want to mention one more thing. The Apostles' Creed will also counsel you. Let me show you what I mean. See where it says uh, the end of the Jesus part? Jesus is coming back. And he's coming to judge the quick, the living, those that are alive, and those that are dead. If you think that, it should change, it will change how you live. If you believe that the day of accountability is quickly approaching, it'll change how you respond today to people. It'll hasten the conversation you don't want to have but need to have. It may propel you to offer what needs to be offered, or to take away what needs to be taken away. The day of accountability is coming, and we don't know when it is, but that'll change how you live if you believe that. Oh, here's another one. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. It's kind of interesting as you read the Bible. Followers of Jesus sin regularly. How many of you sinned this past week? Yeah, good. Sure, shooting, you'll sin this week too, <laughs> probably today. Um, but here's the difference. When followers of Jesus sin, they run to him, not away from him. Because they know he is the source of forgiveness. How many of you have been sinned against this past week? Wow. Well, you must have some awesome friends. <laughs> Only about nine of you. Wow. Yeah. Well, uh, if your eyes are open a little bit, you realize you're regularly sinned against too. But if we believe in the forgiveness of sins... 
and that we've been forgiven an incredible amount, we'll be quick to forgive others when they sin against us. I'm going to ask you to stand. And right before we recite the creed, I'm going to tell you one more thing. When the early church gathered and they would recite the creed, it was the greatest statement of allegiance that they would make. They're saying, I am committed as my first priority to following Jesus Christ. It was the greatest statement of allegiance possible. And it was the greatest statement of rebellion possible. Look at the first line of the Jesus part. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. If you were part of the Roman Empire and you named Jesus as Lord, you were denying that Caesar was Lord and you could be executed for that. And some of the first followers of Jesus were. We don't have a death threat over our lives today for saying Jesus is Lord. But that statement still is the greatest act of allegiance and the greatest statement of rebellion. Because when we say the Apostles' Creed, we are rebelling against all the narratives of our culture. Where are you going to find fulfillment, happiness, modern therapy, or moral therapeutic deism, materialism? I'm going to find peace and happiness in this or in No, you're not. When you say the Creed and you say it honestly, you're rebelling against all the narratives of our culture. And you're saying, I believe that I only find fulfillment, forgiveness, and grace in Jesus Christ. All those other narratives are wrong. I'm staking my life on this one. So if you can say all that as a statement of allegiance and a statement of rebellion, let's recite the Apostles' Creed together. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.